Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So if you were here last week, you'll know, you'll remember that Pastor Jerry started a new sermon series on the Book of Wisdom. So when he told me that he was going to be out of town, he said, naturally, I wanted to ask the wisest person I know if he could preach. <laughs> Unfortunately, that guy was busy, though. So instead, I'm here this morning. So if you were to open up your Bible, just randomly open up to the middle, you're likely going to find the book of Psalms, right? It's the largest book in the Bible. Um, it's very lengthy, over 150 chapters. But what, one question I want to think, I want to start thinking about as I think about Psalms is how is the, the book of Psalms going to begin? Because just like every other book in human history, the first chapter serves as the gateway, sure, ser, serves as the doorway in which one enters into the book. You know, the first chapter, if it's really going to be a good chapter, if it really wants to draw in their audience, it needs to have some sort of, um, you know, noteworthy thing in it. It's got to be, get the people excited to read it. It needs that attention grabber. Otherwise, someone's not going to read it. And think about it. How many books have you stopped reading because you found the introduction to be dull? I'll confess, I, lo- I love the Lord of the Rings movies. I love, like, the, the lore. But the first chapter is incredibly boring, so I've actually never read the book. Now, and into, so for books, and some of you guys are like, I, don't, I hate books. So to, for you, if you think about when we're browsing on your computer or your phone, if the headline isn't exciting, we're not going to read it. And some sites have even kind of gone to the model where they list the, the read time underneath, and I'll confess that I've stopped reading because five minutes just seems too long to, for whatever weird things pop up on the internet. And if we were to have a time, kind of read time for the book of Psalms, it's going to take a lot longer than five minutes, right? Some chapters take longer than five minutes to read. So what, the, what Psalm 1 needs is that it needs that strong attention grabber. It needs to draw us in very quickly. So, because if you've ever read the book of Psalms, you'll know that it is a treasury. It's full of gold in these 150 different chapters, some things that the Psalms teach us. One, it teaches us about God, right? It teaches us about the God who's seated in heaven. He's enthroned. He's master and sustainer of the entire universe. But it also, at the same time, it tells us how God is with us, how he is with us no matter where we go. If we're in the heights, he is with us. If we are in the depths, he is with us. No matter where we go, God is there. It also teaches us that he's our ever present help in trouble, which if you've ever been in a time of hurting, knowing that God is there with you, that serves as a great encouragement. And then too, again, if you're in a time of pain or sorrow or struggles, you can read the Psalms to find that great encouragement. I don't have a percentage, but the number of times where David's crying out to God and asking for help, is that's got to be a high percentage because that is a very common theme throughout the book. 
So it gives us encouragement, but it also teaches us how we're supposed to lament, right? The Psalms call us to call out to the Lord, to call out to the one who provides mercy and justice in a justice, justice-less world in society. The Psalms, they teach us about God, but they also teach us about ourselves. The Psalms, they teach us how we've been lovingly knitted by, together by our Maker, how we are taught that we have a worth and we have value because of who we are in how we have been made in the image of God. And also the Psalms teach us about how we are sinners. They teach us how we are constantly living in rebellion against God, that he has told us one way to live and we live in a contrary way. So one of the things that the Psalm does, I think of Psalm 51 um, as a great example, is that they teach us how to repent. And the Psalms teach us how we're supposed to turn away from our evil, turn away from our rebellion, and instead to, turn, and to run to the arms of our loving and merciful God, who the Psalms teach us he loves to forgive. And then even, it's even more amazing to think about all of these have been written to music. Actually, there's some groups of Christian groups around the world that actually sing just the Psalms. And a lot of them, sometimes they don't even use instruments, but they sing just the words of the Psalms every Sunday. What one thing we can learn about the Psalms very quickly, if you've spent any time in it, is that the book of Psalms is a treasury, and it was made to be written to the song of our heart. So, with all that being said, we have, Psalms is a fantastic book, but how does David draw us in? What gets our attention to make sure that we don't look at the read time and say, eh, that's too much? Well, what he says is actually kind of interesting. He says, blessed is the man... Well, I don't know about you, I like the sound of that. That sounds pretty good. Um, I mean, who doesn't like to be blessed, right? And it sounds, starts to sound even better when we recognize that the Hebrew word that's translated blessed is a plural noun. So we went from blessing to blessings. We're like, oh, all right. So it's not just a single, but it's a group of blessings. Uh, this word, it was in our ESV, is translated as blessed, but it could also be translated as fulfilled or supremely happy. However, for many, if not most of us, when we hear this word blessed or supremely happy or fulfilled, we have sometimes the wrong, like when we hear this kind of all these words about blessings from God, we have the wrong images that fill our mind. For most of us, when we hear blessings, we usually start to think about our bank accounts or our fancy cars or our fancy vacations or, you know, fill in the blank. And I think that's largely in part because our world has been tainted by what has become known as the prosperity gospel. Also, it's going to be known as the word of faith movement or the name and claim it message. But these, this message, this gospel, says that if all we need to, it promises God says he will give you wealth and he will give you health to all of his followers. And that all we need to do is we need to claim it and re- like, name it and claim it, and it's yours. Well, again, this gospel, it's not a gospel at all. It's not, that's not good news. What this is, it's completely self-focused, self-motivated, and it reduces God to a bank teller who gives out money, who gives out get-well cards, magic get-well cards, whatever you want to think. Sounds more like a monopoly dealer than God. And the sad thing is, this heartbreaking thing is, is that this movement is alive and well around the world. 
and that the teachers of it, the promoters of it, they are wealthier than ever, while the people that they are giving this gospel to is who are living in um, squalor. And thousands of people have been taken advantage of around the world by these people who are claiming to be teachers of the word of God. The blessings in Psalm 1 should not be, our minds should not automatically go to health or wealth. They should not be understood as purely financial. Because God doesn't promise us riches or a perfect bill of health in this life. And actually, in a sinful and broken world, we should expect these things. Now, God may bless you in these ways. Um, you know, if you read through the book of Proverbs, there's many little pieces of wisdom that teach us about proper stewardship of our money and of our bodies. And it's not a bad thing to be, you know, have money or to be healthy. But I really want to caution us against this idea that if someone's doing well financially or their health is just doing great, then that automatically means that they're following Christ better than someone who's struggling to make ends meet. Now, the blessings that are referred to and referenced in verse 1 reach far beyond financials or physical health. The blessings that come from God have eternal ramifications. They, and these blessings, and we're spending a little time talking about this morning, they include the word of the Almighty God. They include the great grace and eternal life. So those are kind of our three things we're going to try to look at this morning. So how are we supposed to go about understanding these blessings? How are we supposed to go about understanding these three things? Well, first, we need to start by understanding that what is meant in verse 1 by the word man, right? Now, for many of you, this does include women. This is not just a man-only blessing. Um, but it's so we could say, you know, this, so blesses the man or blesses the woman. But it is important to note that this is not applying to every single person on the planet. These Rather, these, are, these blessings are specifically referring to the righteous, that the individuals who are following God, they are the ones who are being blessed in a special way in Psalm 1. In this passage, we have a picture, we have portraits of two different men or women. We have one who is a follower of God, and we have another who is an unbeliever. And one, one thing I love about this passage is that it spends a lot of time talking about the believer, the righteous, and the blessings that they have, like they receive. It's, that's where the focus and the emphasis really is in. Now, we have to recognize that this person does not receive blessings because he's better than the guy next to him. He doesn't receive blessings because he's completed his weekly moral living checklist, it's, he doesn't receive blessings because he's more talented or he's better looking than the person next to him. But verse 2 tells us specifically how these blessings came about. It said, Blessed is the man because his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This text teaches us that a follower of God is blessed when he delights in the law. Now, with maybe the exception of any lawyers in this room, I doubt that many people here delight in the law. And I, would, I think even lawyers have interns and people that work for them, so maybe they don't even delight in the law that much either. Now, I appreciate that there's a law in our country that prevents somebody from coming up here and beating me up and stealing my car. I appreciate that. But simply knowing that doesn't exactly give me like nice warm and fuzzies in the night. Like, oh man, I didn't get beat up today. Today's a great day. 
So what we have to ask ourselves is, how does the knowledge of a list of do's and don'ts bring blessing to a man? One thing I love about the Bible is that the Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. And there's another psalm that actually fits very well with Psalm 1, and I think it really will help us shed some light on this passage. Now, Psalm 19, it may be familiar to many of you, um, or at least the first verse. The first verse says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Some of you guys may know a different translation. That one seems a little blockish. But in the middle of the Psalm 19, there's a, one, there's a few verses, 7 through 11, that really help us understand this idea of delighting in the law. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drips of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. What this passage is telling us is that the blessing from the law of the Lord doesn't come because God has given us a code of ethics. But blessing comes through the law, through his revealed word, because through it, God has revealed himself to us. God, the word, the law, reveals to us the heart of God. I think for many of us, when we think of the law, our mind goes to the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, again, it would be very easiest for us, us to read them like, hey, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, I'm a good person. But that's a very shallow view of what the Ten Commandments are and what the law of God is. The Ten Commandments are not just like God wanting us to treat other, play nicely with other kids. The law of the Lord, the Word of God, is telling us how we're supposed to live, and we see that through His Word. We won't go through all of them, but even if we just kind of go through the Ten Commandments, just those ten, we can see the heart of the Lord in a few different ways. I think for, for, let's go with the first one, right? God tells us we're supposed to have no other gods before Him. He's saying that because God is the only one worth worshiping. That he is the one who's made everything. He's made us. He keeps us alive. And we are made to worship. So why would we worship something else, a something that is a creation, when we have our creator that we're meant to worship? God loves us so much, and he deserves our worship. He sets it up even in his word that we're supposed to worship him. Let's go with the fourth commandment, right? Remember the Sabbath. You guys are doing a great job with that one, by the way. The Sabbath, it's not just so we, because like we need to, a nice time to kind of sit down. Again, we, Dana and I have toddlers, so our minds right now are like, sit there, stay down, just got to get up. But God's not just worried about us moving around too much, but he does recognize we need to rest. And we need to worship, again, worship our creator, the one that's made us and has given us all of our blessings. And we are spent, we are, he is reserved one day for us to spend some intentional time worshiping him. Now, let's do one more, right? Let's, let's, we can we have 10 to choose from, right? Let's go with, you shall not murder. God loves life. God is the giver of life, and he's called us to not kill one another, to not take the life from someone else, to not take the place of God. Again, that's not just God saying, oh, be nice to one another, but he's saying, 
each, every single person that has value and worth. And we should not kill or take something from someone else. Again, when we could spend weeks doing every, going through every single one, showing us how, but the word reveals to us the heart of God as he tells us how we're supposed to live. He directs our worship. He, gives us how, he tells us how we're supposed to give him praise. It's life-giving. It revives the soul. It's sweeter than honey. It's worth more than gold. Like, we learn so much about God just by simply reading through his word. We learn that he's covenant-making, that he's merciful. In him, there's no darkness at all. All of those things are revealed through his word, through the law of God. And it's that sort of language, the language of kind of going back to Psalm 19 about sweeter than honey and then the honeycomb, it's like gold. It's like when we hear about verbiage like that, that's when we understand why we ought to delight in the law and in the word. And Charles Spurgeon, was a, he's a very popular preacher um, in the 1800s. He, was, he said that on, regarding our passage that David had, did not have a fourth of what we possess. That it was a little Bible in his day. You know, David had five books of the Bible, whereas we have 66 that we can delight in, that we can study, and that we can learn more about God. So Spurgeon said that we should take 10 more times delight than the psalmist did if we have this much more of the Bible than David did. I want to, st- I want to stick with Psalm 19 for just a minute. There's a, one phrase I love in this passage, and it says, enlightening the eyes. Now, this reminds me of the life of John Newton, who is the famous Christian hymn writer. He wrote Amazing Grace. Uh, he did not plan to have electric guitars in it, but I think it works. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure that many of you are familiar with John Newton's story, how he had been heavily involved working in the British slave trade. Uh, his story is very sad, full of abuse and heartache, and um, he was greatly hurt. But, you know, he got into the slave trade, actually kind of started out being forced into it, but he worked many years in the British slave trade. But he was eventually converted to Christianity. And one of the major turning points in his life was surviving a major storm on a sea voyage, which is amazing. There's some of our great heroes of the faith have storms involved. So I'm not promoting go out in a thunderstorm, but you know, maybe it'll be a God moment for you. But so he was converted kind of during this, this storm. And one thing he said as he was, you know, in this massive storm where sailors were taking off their clothing to fill up holes in the, in the ship. It was freezing, and so off the coast of Ireland, it was nasty, nasty cold water and storm. One thing he kept saying is like, God, have mercy on me. God, have mercy on me. And he thought about that, though. He's like, why would God have mercy on me? I'm a slave, I've been a slave trader. I've abused. One thing that John Newton, especially towards the end of his life, would always say is that he had the voices of men and women and children screaming in the back of his mind as he reflected on how many people he'd hurt and led to slavery. So that was a major turning point in his life. And it was actually a few years until he really kind of came to a fruition, a real faith, but that was one of the big moments. And years later, he actually went on to become a pastor. He went on to write over 200 Christian hymns and songs. Again, Amazing Grace is maybe the most well-known hymn of all time. He was the writer of that. And one of the most memorable lines in that song, at least for me, is, I was once blind, but now I see. It was not until Newton was converted that he saw the evil that slavery truly was and is. Because back in his days, according to the law and the air of his country, slavery was permissible and it was legal. But according to the law of our God, 
Slavery is an abomination. And Newton had been blind to that fact, but the Holy Spirit removed the scales from his eyes so that he could see. In the last years of his life, he worked diligently to abolish the slave trade in Great Britain, working very closely with William Wilberforce, who actually ended up kind of getting that passed. If you're a follower of God, if you're a Christian, how has the law of the Lord changed your life? How has it opened your eyes? Most of us don't have a story as dramatic as John Newton's. But I want to challenge us this morning to think about by what law our hearts are being led by. We live in the information age, right? Where we have more information at our fingertips, fingertips than ever before. Which means that we have more access to groups and individuals who are very happy to promote their own ideas and their own philosophies. So we need to be extremely aware of the condition of our hearts and our minds. Asking ourselves regularly, how is what I am seeing impacting my view on the Word of God? Because if we're not delighting in the Word, if we're not delighting in the heart of God, which the law shows us, we will be swept away. That we will be like the house that Jesus talked about in one of his parables that was built on a sandy foundation and it collapses when the waves come crashing in. So I want us to spend some time this week to meditate on the Word. I want us to take some time to delight in the author of our life story. So I, I want to challenge you. I want you to set a goal for this week to learn one thing about God or to be reminded of one of God's attributes. And that, just also make a prayer, at least again, one time. Ask the Lord to open your eyes in a special way to what he's telling us and revealing to us about himself. Everyone who is worshiping here with us this morning has a different life circumstance going on, right? Um, whether it be navigating the challenges of being a new parent, uh, Dan and I are fighting the toddler bed transition, and it's not going well. Um, you can pray for us. So maybe it's the challenge of new parents. Maybe you're a parent of teenagers working through that and navigating those situations. Others of us are facing big decisions when it comes to jobs, professions, or to move here, to move there. Uh, some of us are looking at the budget and not quite sure how that hole is going to be filled. Every one of us is in a different place this morning. But every single one of us would be extremely blessed if we were to meditate on the Word this week, to reflect on who God is, to seek to better understand the Word of God and to lay our burdens and our joys before the Lord in a more intentional way this week. In Matthew 6, in the context Jesus is speaking about anxiousness and worries about daily needs, Jesus tells the disciples and his hearers that you know, he takes care of the birds, he, takes, he dresses the tulips, and he says in verse 34 of that chapter, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We're told that in the times of trouble in our lives, what we're called to do is to seek the Lord and he will take care of you. To seek the king and he will care for us. So going back to Psalm 1, right? In verses 1 and 2, we have a picture of a righteous man. But we also have a picture of a, a wicked man. And we're shown, we're shown how there's a natural progression, actually a regression, that happens in the place of a wicked man's life. Because what we need to recognize is that sin and wickedness is a poison 
that if it's left untreated, it only gets worse and worse and worse. And we see that progression or regression in Psalm 1. First, the ungodly man takes counsel of the wicked. Right? A wicked person looks for help or they looks for guidance in all the wrong places. Mainly because they know that the wicked counsel is going to tell them what they want to hear. Right? We all like counselors that tell us that we're doing a fantastic job, and that's what a wicked loves and strives to do. We have one clear biblical example in the Bible of a, what this looks like, this bad counsel, and that is in the life of King Rehoboam. Now, some of you guys may be familiar with Rehoboam. Rehoboam was the son of Solomon. King Solomon was the king who God had given great wisdom to. He didn't use it very well, but he had it. Um, and Rehoboam was his son, and Rehoboam was an apple that fell way far away from the tree, right? So the Israelites, once Rehoboam became king, the Israelites, you know, Rehoboam's subjects, they came to him and said, you know, your dad was really hard on us. He drove us very hard. They used the analogy of a, a yoke. They said his yoke on us was hard. So they asked him to lighten the load, to lighten that work, that, that yoke, and if, they, if he did that, they would be his faithful, loyal subjects, so he sent them away, and then he, he sought counsel, right? First, he spoke to his, the, the older advisors who had worked with his father, and they said, you know, hear the people's request, light, show them some mercy, and they're going to follow you. Seems pretty straightforward. But Rehoboam decided to reject that advice, and he took the advice of his friends, the, people he, the guys he had grown up with, and he chose to listen to them, and this is what they said to do. My father made your, your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. Your father disciplined us with whips. I will discipline you with scorpions. Now, believe it or not, the people didn't like that. Wow, spoiler. They did not, and they went on to rebel. The ungodly seeks, and they take wicked counsel. You know, don't go and tell someone you're going to beat him with scorpions, and you're probably going to do a little better this week. But the wicked man takes evil counsel. From that point of taking wicked counsel, they continue to go down the downward spiral, and the wicked man progresses to stand in the way of sinners. Now, at first, this sounds kind of good. We're like, oh, he's standing in the way. Good job. But that's not what this means at all. What that means is they are participating with the sinner, that they are engaging in sinful practices of the people around them, that they are embracing, they're enjoying the lifestyle that, of the sinners in a stark contrast to the law of God. Again, where God says do this, we're like, no, we're going to do this. And that's how the spiral continues. And then once that second stage hits, uh, it's, the third step is not far behind, which is sitting, sitting in the seat of scoffers. No longer are you just simply condoning or engaging the sinful actions, but now we're the ones promoting it. And we're cursing, we're berating, we're screaming at anyone who speaks out against the sin. It's heartbreaking and scary, but as Christianity declines in our country, as it in the world as a whole, the number of people sitting in these seats of scoffing is only going to continue to grow. And as Christians, we're going to be forced to, in some very public ways, make known where is it that we stand, or better yet, where it is we sit. Are we sitting in the way of the wicked, or are we sitting or standing in the way or the path of the righteous? And this can be scary to think about, especially since the religious persecution in our country has been incredibly mild and tame compared to other parts of the world. But we must remember that our trust, our hope, does not come from the cultural or current trends or the political party that's in office or worldly powers. No, our trust is in the name of the Lord our God, who has given us his word.
Our trust is in God because he has given us of himself. From his throne, God looked down on us, and out of his great love for us, he sent his son Jesus to earth in order to die. He came to conquer the powers that seek to destroy us, to save us from the evildoers, and to ultimately to save us from our own sins that have completely entangled us. Jesus came not because we were on the righteous path, but because we're going on the path of the wicked. And the path of the wicked doesn't lead to eternal blessings, but it leads to eternal ruin. Friends, Jesus didn't come just to give us a good example of how we're supposed to live. He didn't just come to teach us how to be nice and kind to one another. Jesus became man to pay the blood price for us all. Because friends, we are a wicked people. We are sinners, level 100. We're innovative, we're crafty, we're adaptive sinners. We are such accomplished sinners that we actually have tricked ourselves into thinking we're good people. Don't pat yourself on the back for that. That's not a good thing. But Jesus knows, right? Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our deepest and darkest thoughts. He pulls back the curtain. He sees everything we've been trying to hide from everyone else. But despite seeing all that evil, that dark filth, Jesus chose to love us. So much so that he paid the price, the punishment that we deserve for our evil. And he did all of that so that we could be counted as righteous, so that our lives would be marked by the work of Christ rather than our own evil deeds. And anyone who's been counted as righteous by God is invited into the kingdom of God. And this righteousness, this salvation, is freely given to anyone who calls out to the Lord in faith. God does all the salific work. The only thing we did to... Did, did for our salvation was make it necessary. All that we have to do in our salvation is to accept it. Um, I've, I've greatly benefited from a man named Francis Schaeffer. Some of you are probably are familiar with him. He was a theologian. He was an author. And he often said, we are saved on the basis of the work of Christ. Faith is simply raising empty hands and accepting the gift. And that's where the Christian journey begins, by raising those hands of faith. Now, David, he gives us an example in verse 3 of, our, of Psalm 1 that um, it kind of describes the Christian journey, right? He, or we could say, um, we could replace with the word Christian, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The life journey of a Christian in Psalm 1 is descri described as a growth of a tree. And it's a beautiful picture, right? Because it is... It illustrates how we are being tended to by the master gardener, by God himself. How we are cared for by the one who has planted us in fertile soil, located by streams of water that will never dry up, and so that we can bear fruit and not wither. Um, Dan and I recently moved into our house, and they gave us some these little trees, and they are, man, these are pitiful. The ground is awful. The, there's no water out there. Those things are, I should have taken a picture. It looks sad. That's not what this looks like in Psalm, three, or Psalm 1 for us. We are not that sad, pathetic tree in my backyard. He's being taken care of, plant, having been planted in fertile soil, located next to water. And there will be, and again, we have a master gardener with us. God himself is with us. And it's important to note that there is going to be times when he prunes us. There's going to be times when he trims us. 
But we can rest assured that every single, every prune, prune, not prune, prune and trim that he does in us is done for our good. That every prune is for our sanctification, that the Lord, Holy Spirit is making us more and more like Jesus each and every day. And because God is preparing us for eternity. The Christian journey doesn't stop here on earth. This is just the first chapter. And what's coming is so much greater. Because someday we're going to be in the very presence of God, who we will be with our Savior, who is, while we're surrounded by Christians from all over the world and different points of history. Our passage this morning calls it this multitude, the congregation of the righteous. And we will get to hear these people's stories about how God pruned them and molded them all while we are in paradise. Like what a time that's going to be in a place where there's no time. Where we get to talk with Moses and Elijah and David, all these people who went before us and hear how God worked in their lives and then we get to share with them how God worked in our lives. That's going to be an amazing time. We, we, would do, we would not do justice this passage, though, if we didn't share the warning that does come with it. And there's a stern warning that comes to the wicked. While the righteous, they're compared to the trees, the wicked are compared to chaff that blows away in the wind. So while the righteous are welcomed into this eternal community in heaven, with, with, we will be with our Savior, the wicked will not be counted as saved. They will not be counted as righteous because that's not what they are. They will be judged and they will be perished. Friends, do not be counted among the wicked today. If you are not a Christian, let today be the day of your salvation from the pit of hell. Don't let you, please do not go away from this place not knowing if you are a tree or if you are chaff. Let today be the day when your chains are loosed and when you are set free. Let today be that day when you lift up those empty hands to receive the gift of grace. Because Jesus died for you, and now he's sitting on the throne of heaven. And he's calling us to find rest and to find blessings that come at his feet. So we started this message this morning by looking at the meaning of God's blessings. But I want to end today by reading of the blessings that Christ spoke of in his Sermon on the Mount, where he used the word blessed Blessings that clearly reveal the heart of God and his love for us. Blessings that sustain us as we walk in this Christian journey, as we continue to grow up as we walk in, our, in, walk in Christ in the midst of a wicked world. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will shall, shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are the blessings that God promises to his people. And make sure you think today if you are a tree or if you are a chaff. Because the way, there's an easy solution to go from chaff to tree. That's by calling out to Jesus. And make sure you've made that call today. Let's pray. Merciful Heavenly Father, 
You, God, created us in blessedness and happiness. You gave us your law as a rule for the good and godly life. By your grace, enable us to renounce and die to sin and to bring for the fruits or the Spirit's fruit in our life. Under your holy protection, give us peace and confidence that when Jesus Christ appears to judge, we will be numbered among the redeemed by his blood. Through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.